Before Mike Spencer became a private investigator, he worked the crime beat at a Sarasota, Florida paper. He's pulling a 2 to 11 shift one night when the fax machine starts humming. And at 10.30, one of those curly thermal faxes comes in from the sheriff's office. And it's a fax about a body being discovered in a trash can in a swimming pool. When Spencer was studying journalism at Berkeley, everybody told him, if you want to be a police reporter, you got to go to Florida. Crazy things happen there, they said. Like stuff out of a Carl Hyacin novel. Stuff like this. I went out to the scene, and underneath the coroner's crime blanket on a stretcher, the body was so decomposed, they had to keep it in the trash can. So the photo shows a trash can under a tarp on a stretcher being carried out by sheriff's deputies. It was a very disgusting, but also a very Florida story. And I don't think they ever made arrests or ever really got to the bottom of all of this is, what's her body doing in a trash can in a swimming pool? When you're a journalist or a private investigator, sometimes the stories don't wrap up neat and tidy the way we want them to. But still, we do the work. We gather the facts. We report the story. Sometimes we're just left with more questions, and that's okay. As private investigators, we all have our greatest hits. We'll hear one of Mike Spencer's in a minute, but first, I'm Nashville private investigator Hal Humphreys, and this is The Sound of Pursuit. This episode, Episode 5, Spencer for Hire. Pursuit editor Kim Green met Mike Spencer in San Francisco's Mission District. Now, San Francisco is, in P.I. lore, a character in its own right. I mean, it's home to the fictional agency of Spade and Archer, and one of the best-known fictional P.I.s ever, Sam Spade. So if you're looking for P.I. greatest hits, this bustling metropolis is a place to go. Spencer was kind enough to share one of his stories. This one has all the elements. Paranoia, porn, aliases, body fluids, you get the picture. We all have our memorable cases, sort of our our best of soundtrack. And certainly the the one case that I tell the story of, which actually is so perverse it has two names, fits the bill. And that case is the case of the jealous blind man slash the case of the frozen tampon. A person contacted me and they said that they would have their chauffeur take them to me and they would meet in a cafe. And as soon as I heard chauffeur, I thought, well, this is going to be a very one very wealthy client and I'm certainly ready for this. So I show up at the cafe and the man was blind and he told his chauffeur to get lost and he explained to me that what he wanted to find out was whether his wife had been in porn movies 30 years ago. So he had my attention. He told me the story that one day he came home from work and saw a bunch of workers loading up 16 millimeter cameras, but they used to make those old movies. And he wondered, well, that looks kind of strange. Why are these guys coming out of my place with, with movie cameras? And one day, someone at his work said, hey, I saw your wife in a, in a movie down at the Pussycat Theater. 
Pussycat Theater used to be an old porn movie house in Oakland, but they took it away when the earthquake hit. It just wasn't seismically <laughs> retrofitted, so the, the Pussycat Theater went by the boards. The first step in the investigation we had to find out was when roughly would this co-worker have seen these movies playing down the pussycat? And he thought about it and he said, well, I think it would have been these three months in whatever, you know, 1972. At the time I had friends on a rugby team and one of them, Sideshow, was marginally employed. So I said, hey, Sideshow, can you go down to the Oakland Library and look at the microfiche ads and see what movies were playing at the Pussycat Theater? So sure enough, Sideshow went down there and he came back with a list of about 20 movies that it possibly could have been in. And I'll spare listeners the movie titles because I think they might not pass muster for or PG-13 audience rating. Please, please tell me some titles. Oh, I don't remember. It's like anal nurses. <laughs> I think you get the idea. How am I going to get these movies? I got to watch the movies to see if she was in them. And he had described her for me. So then I put out a request to the rugby team, the rescue once again. And my friend Alex found where all of these movies could be bought. And he bought them all for like a hundred dollars. And Alex found it like within 45 minutes. I think I probably bought him like a case of beer or something. So now I had all these movies. <laughs> so this was back in my apartment at the time. I probably spent who knows how many hours just watching these movies, some of them watching them three times, and never found her in these movies and reported back to the guy and, and bothered people always ask, so did you bill for all your early time? And I, I think I, not for all of it, but for some of it, certainly. So the first part satisfied the guy that his wife was not in a porno movie. Was that enough to satisfy him? No, it wasn't. He came back to me and he said, hey, I still don't trust my wife. I don't think my daughter is mine. And I said, well, I know of a private lab. We can do a, a DNA test and all I need is I need to get a sample from you and we'll need to get some sort of sample from her. So we sat in the car and I think I took uh, cheek swabs from him and then I didn't hear from him for about a week. And he shows up at my apartment with a brown paper bag. And I'm thinking, I have no idea, what did he bring me? It was his daughter's frozen tampon. And I thought to myself, why couldn't you bring chewing gum? Or how about a hairbrush? But no, he, for some reason, he brought me her frozen tampon. So I kept it in the paper bag and I sent the frozen tampon and his swabs off to the lab. And it came back a couple weeks later and his daughter is his. So now we're two for two. His wife apparently wasn't in porno movies. His daughter is his, but I wasn't quite done with the client. He said, I want you to bug the house. This is back when everyone had phone jacks. And, I, and I'm sure, you know what, it probably, probably was illegal technically, but it's the guy's own house. And at the time, the laws were much grayer than they are now. So what you would do is you'd take a tape recorder and plug it into an unused jack. So it was a primitive phone bug, really, is what it was. So I installed these things for him. That's when I started thinking to myself, I don't like how this is going. 
I'm not a counselor. And our last conversation we had was the poor guy was just crying and sobbing. And I just realized I've done all I can for the guy. And I just said goodbye and good luck. And that was it. And there's part of you that feels sorry for the guy because obviously the trust and you don't know what happened in that relationship. And you reach a point where it's just you've done all you can do for this person and time to go. As professional private investigators, we face a bit of a dilemma. We want to be seen as serious, professional, good at our jobs. But we also have these crazy, lurid stories. Spencer says his fear is, if I just play up all these lurid stories, people just think, you know, you're some kind of freak. Truth is, both of these aspects exist. We're professionals, but over time, we do accumulate goofy, gross, oddball stories that people love to hear. And that's okay. That's the sound of pursuit. Thanks to Mike Spencer. You can find him on Twitter, at SpencerPI. Music provided by Headmint, Songs for Corporations. Our theme song composed by Jason White. Thanks to Pursuit editor Kim Green for reporting the story. Special thanks to Simon Gugela. Simon says... Anal nurses. <laughs> I think you get the idea. 